I'm Kelly Rose Lamb, and this is Bold. This show is for women who believe there is more than the script we've been handed. I interview women and hear their stories to uncover the common thread of boldness running through their lives. This podcast interview with Anya explores various topics, including her art practice, her approach to empathy, and perspective on boldness. Anya is a talented artist that creates experiences, which she gets into on this show. She is focused on building community, facilitating empathy, and promoting creativity. For creatives, this is a really great conversation about both the expression and the practice of art. Let me tell you a little bit more about Anya. She is an interdisciplinary artist, graphic designer, and visual storyteller from Bangalore, India. Her practice spans a range of mediums and investigates social, political, and cultural systems in order to critique and question existing injustices. The work she undertakes has the ultimate goal of facilitating empathy across diverse communities and systematic disparities to catalyze small actions of change. I'm so glad you're here, and I hope you enjoy the show. Anya, welcome here. I'm so glad to get to talk to you today. Thanks, Kelly. I'm so excited to be here. I would love to just jump in and learn more about you. Could you tell us more about your journey as an interdisciplinary artist and how you developed your passion for visual storytelling? Great question. Who is she? Where do I even begin? Almost the whole story. (laughs) So when I was eight, (laughs) this is great. I went to an art class and I was taught how to color in an apple. And I did a really good job coloring within the lines. And I got a gold star from it for it. Um, and I think, you know, external validation goes a long way. So that's sort of what started me on this journey. But seriously speaking, I, <laughs> I, I went to art school back home in India. I went to Shishti Institute of Art Design and Technology and played around with a few different mediums and didn't really find one that was like mine to call like home, if that makes sense. Hmm. And so... It really came from experimenting with a bunch of different forms and materials and playing around and realizing that I didn't have to choose one. I could weave in and out of different mediums. And the important part is the story or the context or what it is that I'm trying to say. So that what led me down the path of becoming an interdisciplinary artist. It just means that I use media smoothly and work interchangeably depending on the context. But yeah, undergrad was big for me and that specifically there was a project that I did called Memory Lab and it was run by this Argentinian filmmaker who is like one of my like big influences in my practice his name is Nicholas Grandi and he this this course Memory Lab was all about uncovering relations to memory in in terms of large social political movement and one of the things that we investigated was the 1984 Sikh massacre that happened in India. And we traveled to Preetnagar in Punjab to uncover the stories of people that had experienced that moment in history from, and uh, through one specific day. And anyway, uh, long story short, I think giving those stories a form really changed the trajectory of my life, I want to say. Like, I grew up with a lot of privilege and hadn't had the experience of, of listening to stories that were that profoundly 
just moving. And so, yeah, taking those stories and get, we turned it into a, like a Marvel Channel film. It was a group project. And we related back to people in the city. And so many people were touched by that. And I think that that sort of um, brought the, the, the concept of visual storytelling into my life and, and how that could be a very impactful form of sharing perspective. What was that moment of insight like for you where you, it's like you almost saw the world from a totally different angle? Yeah, I think there was, so one specific interview that we did was with the village postmaster, Kinti Lyle, and he was just this, so he was a man, he was an old man who was paralyzed from the waist down. And he was telling the story of how one day in, um, in Punjab in 1984, these terrorists entered a village and they were after a, a young child, they were going to shoot him. And Kinti Lal interjected and stopped that from happening. But in the process, he was shot and he was injured. And so he tells the story now as a man um, sitting behind a post office bench, not able to move, but like not filled with any regret for his actions or even like anger towards the people that did this to him because he was very empathetic in the way that he was like, we were all a product of the mm. time. And it's it's not their fault that they were influenced in the way that they were. And he also like... I think that story was also really impactful for me because I saw how the village came together and really supported this man. Uh, he used to be a traveling tailor um, who would go from place to place to mend people's clothes, but then after his accident, couldn't do it anymore. And so the village banded together and appointed him the village postmaster so that he could stay in one place and still earn a living. That was one really impactful moment in that journey. It's so interesting. Along with being obviously an interdisciplinary artist, you are also a community artist and you lead at a place called Possibilities. Can you mm -hmm. share some of the initiatives or projects you've been involved in and um, talk about the positive impact they have in the community and even tying it back to uh, the story you just told, how like community is a part of what you kind of stand for? I help lead a project uh, called Neighborhood Organizing, along with my really good friend and worker Stephanie Koenig. So the two of us helped lead this prototype, um, which is funded by Possibilities and Vancouver Coastal Health, but also are supported by the wonderful folks at In With Forward, which is a social design studio here in Vancouver. And uh, the In With Forward as a studio addresses real-world problems through design methodology. And so it's interesting that I get to work across various organizations to do this work but so neighborhood organizing really came from covid and realizing that place had um a deeper meaning to us at that time where we couldn't leave our homes our neighborhoods we had to form connections where we were and recognizing that here in the west that is very very what's the word siloed or um mm -hmm. ruptured maybe like i don't know that I would know any of my neighbors' names had I not started this project. Whereas back home in India, like I grew up on the street with my neighbors, like running around, like none of our doors were ever locked. I think I knew the contents of my neighbor's kitchen cabinet better than them sometimes. <laughs> so it's like a very different kind of environment. And so 
really here we're trying to challenge some of the social norms that keep us apart, whether it's distrust for difference, privacy culture, you know, disconnection from a sense of place and isolation and loneliness. There's so many things, so many um, inherited social ways of being that we don't question as mm-hmm. often as we should, or we don't try to disrupt. And so really what we're trying to do through this prototype is to like create moments of delightful subversion. That's what we like to call it. So really shake things up, but in a, in a really fun way. But asking difficult questions is, is part of that process. So yeah, and, and it's very much still a prototype, right? So we're learning a lot, we're failing a lot, we're growing a lot. And that's just part of the charm of it, I think. Um, so it's hard to say we've had a positive impact. I know that we, our intentions are to do that, but we definitely had like small wins along mm. the way. And I think like the small wins speak to possible uh, positive impact. And I think some of the wins are folks with and without disabilities, interacting, collaborating together, folks that may have never shared space coming together and working collaboratively to come up with um, a solution. We've run activations now, a couple of them. So anywhere from like serving people hot chocolate on the side of the street to creating more critical ways to challenge the status quo. So like we did strangers only picnics. And so that was really inviting just anyone to come sit down and try a strange snack from um, all over the world. Like we curated a, a, a selection of snacks that were culturally diverse and and then each plate had a question on it and so you could really start a conversation anyway and we also did this thing called elephants in the room which is all about having this difficult conversation like we live in a very siloed society you Mm -hmm. tend to only interact and talk to people that look and feel like you do and so the elephant in the room invited people to come and and find something that they disagree on, but like do it oh, in wow. a way that, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Why was I not invited? <laughs> uh, well, Just kidding. I'm totally next. joking. <laughs> no, no, totally. It, because it's a prototype, right? We were testing yeah, it out. We no, were I trying know. to get a sense for whether people would engage or not. And they did. We had such interesting discussions hmm. and you could choose your level of engagement, right? It was like, you could be, we, we chose like the animal kingdom as a reference point and did like, if you're feeling super brave, you're a tiger. If you're feeling like so kind of shy, you're a mouse. And you get a little sticker and you slap it on. And so people can identify uh, what kind of conversation you're down to have. But yeah, one of the one of the positive impact stories, I think, from that activation was there was this person who saw us and was like, what is this? I don't really want to engage, but what is this? And I was like, okay, we're here to find something to disagree on. And he was like, yeah, if I did engage, I would want to be a fly on the wall. And I was like, well, we do have a fly on the wall sticker. Oh my. He put on the sticker. He came. He sat in the space. He was listening to people talk. And I was like, oh, so what's your name? And then he responded by going, like, I'm a fly. Don't talk to me, which I thought was really funny and endearing. But then slowly started to warm up and like share his opinion. And like, he ended up staying for lunch. And like told us his name finally and so it's those kinds of things where people slowly unpack their own their own feelings and um, engage in ways that they didn't expect to 
So beautiful. I love that there was a fly on the wall sticker. It's amazing. <laughs> I'm so curious in all of these initiatives and in, in leading them and creating these spaces or activations, how has being a part of community or inspiring maybe more community changed you? Mm. Well, like I said, I think the biggest thing is that I carry myself quite differently in public space. I think being a person of color, like when I first moved here, I was trying my hardest uh, to be small. I think that's also something that you learn as a woman and Mm -hmm. a person of color. Like there's all of these reasons for me to make myself super small and like want to go unnoticed. But I think walking in community has made me brave. Like it's made me bold, dare I say it. (laughs) Uh, It's made me like more comfortable and being uncomfortable. So like going out in community is not easy. I face a lot of rejection. There's a lot of doors that will slam in your face, people that don't want to talk to you. But it's all about like the attitude with which you carry yourself. And it's like, okay, you don't want to talk to me. That's fine. You know, like I probably wouldn't stop for me either, but like it's it's that confidence that I now have in public space that I didn't because now I see it like now I now I feel like I own that space too. Like I feel like it's my space as well. And I think that's why I do it. Like it makes me uncomfortable. It makes it's frustrating and it's hard, but it's also like gives me a sense of ownership and belonging. And so I'm, I'm more likely to do it, if that makes sense. And then also add that with that prototype, we were doing a lot of, like, the goal is to bridge lines of difference. And I think it's nice to have that goal, but it's really hard to enact it. And so for me, personally as well, it's like, what do I do when I come up to difference? And, like, what kind of difference am I okay with? And what kind of difference really push is pushing me? And so it's teaching me to sit with the tension as well. It's like, I don't need to know the perfect way to respond to this individual or situation, but that I'm okay, like engaging in my own comfort and like trying my best to understand where somebody else is coming from. And so, yeah, that building bridges part is, is I think a piece for me that I will continue to work on. I do think Mm -hmm. it takes work. So thank you for doing that work and then encouraging others to do it as well. So I would love to talk about some of your art projects, one radical care and the other strong woman. Maybe we'll start with radical care. Uh, the, the name of it really caught my attention, but can you tell us more about it? Yeah, I mean, okay, so where do I start? So 2017, I had just moved to Canada from India, my first time living away from home, really. And I knew maybe one person here. Um, I didn't really know anybody and uh, it was really hard for me. I was really struggling with a sense of community and place and you know, really missing my home and, and the people that I would lean on. And so at the same time, I was also in a master's program that kind of felt like an odd fit for me because I've come from this like rich storytelling background in community working, like telling people's stories. And then I was in this like program that was all about the white cube gallery space and making work that was very removed like the language that you need to be able to speak a a lot about a lot of things about it were like pushing up against me and then I think in that moment of tension is when I was like I have there's a need here like for community and 
that I'm saying, it came from a personal need for me. And so really situating and learning more about different kinds of art practices uh, is when I discover social practice art or community engaged art. I mean, yeah, education is a, institutions and educations are interesting spaces because there's a lot of learning. There's also a lot of unlearning. And I think that that was like a culmination of both of those things that led me to um, realizing my work through community engaged practice. And so radical care is something that I developed in my time at Emily Carr as a response to what I was feeling at the time. And it was really about this like need, this urge or desperation for us to be present with one another, nurturing our interpersonal connections and really listening and um, deepening our understanding of difference. It I, I think I framed it as an embodied protest because it inhabits the space from a position of belonging, even if it doesn't. And um, it's radical because it extends the care that we usually reserve for our friends and family to and compass strangers. So that was something that was really important to me is like liking Tilal's story where his village banded together behind him and supported him. I think that was some that was a feeling of that was a feeling of humanity and unity that I was trying to recreate by developing this methodology. And so that's that's basically what radical care is. And how I enact radical care is through these immersive spaces. And I've been I've done it maybe once or twice now, but it's like I cover the space in brown paper and there's various ways to engage, but really it's an investigation of what care means to, to, to you or to anyone that walks into the space. Anyone can come. It's just you come, you sit down, you make something, you share a story, you write it on the wall, you have a conversation. Often there's like soup or hot chocolate or something that is like nourishing to your soul. And yeah, and that's really the idea. It's just, it's not an agenda. It's like a co-created space where we can just showcase all the ways that care exists in our society that we might not be able to see. Anya, I'm really curious what you learned from other people's expression of care. Mm, that's, that's really hard question because I have really bad memory. But... <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a few stories that really stood out for me. So the last activation that I did was at Alternatives Gallery, which is on Venables. And um, this space evolved. And the, the form that the clay took was these bricks, right? Uh, these bricks of clay that formed a wall between two people and that you had to take a brick in order to bring the wall down and make something. So, yeah, I think there was like, Someone, I'm reminded of this person who made a bedroom and a bed and like really intricate details of like their living space. And they talked about how care can exist in a cozy bed, but it can also exist in helping someone leave the bed. So like talk, talking about their experience with depression mm -hmm. and anxiety and like how their partner really had to like pull them out of it. So that, that was an act of care. I'm reminded of this other person who made a snake and a snake charmer and he worked in the disability space and all of these metaphors, like I, I, I read it as a metaphor for working in that space where he was, you know, the snake is like 
super undesirable and is seen as like something to be feared and like unknown and scary or whatever. But that the snake charmer is different. They take the time to get to know the snake and they understand that it's not the the sound of the flute, but it's the movement of the flute that the snake is drawn to. And and so in that way, that relationship is like what helps them both survive. Yes, that was another really beautiful moment. And then uh, there was someone who made leave alien creatures that lived in, in the window of the gallery. And they talked about how when they were experiencing homelessness, that none of their friends would take them in, but that there was a man who had like a 450 square foot apartment who a space with her. And so for her, care is two queen beds in like 450 square feet apartment. So yeah, those kinds of uh, anecdotes really mm. stuck with me. Yeah. It's fun to hear care from other people's perspective. I think we can get into our own heads or our own worlds about what care means. So it's fun to crack mm-hmm. that open and hear more. I'd also love mm-hmm. to hear about, obviously, Bold Podcast being a podcast for, <laughs> you know, hearing stories of, of women. I, I would love if you could talk about your work, uh, Strong Women. And if you have mm-hmm. it available, would love if you could even read the poem that has inspired this work. Yeah, totally. So maybe I'll read the poem first and then give you some context. So, a strong woman is sometimes strongly fed up. A strong woman is at times strongly rageful. A strong woman is on occasion, on occasion deeply sorrowful. The Leonard Shakti teach me in this unbearable now about the cosmic doubts of creation destruction. We are so much more aware of destruction, so asleep to creation. Teach us in this now what we need to know, for strong women are strongly prepared to grow. I love it. Uh, <laughs> me too. So that these are the words of the very eloquent Latamani, who is a feminist historian, a cultural critic, a contemplative writer, and also a filmmaker. And she's also a good friend and mentor. And I've had the good fortune of working with her over the years on a number of projects. So her and Nicholas, actually, they work together a lot and they create films. And then I have historically translated those films into artist books. And so that's sort of how I, how I was, what's the word, exposed to this, this poem. It's this, the opening sequence of their film from, called Poetics of Fragility. And it's said by the incredible Angela Davis. And so this series... And illustrations that I created were very much a response to that poem. And my my project, Strong Woman, is really about trying to unpack what it means to be a woman in this day and age, and, and specifically in the Indian context. So for me, it was all about containers that we were put into. Like I like I was saying about that, like I was saying earlier about being made small. I think that's something we are taught at a very young age. And there's like a very prescribed way that our lives are supposed to go and ways in which we're supposed to talk, feel, think, and speak, sit. Like it could be any of those things. And so I think these containers are too small for us. And so the line for strong women are strongly prepared to grow really spoke to me. And I started to create these illustrations of 
women or female presenting bodies like coming out of containers or like growing despite their containers. And so, yeah, I think our bodies might be confined in this society that our existence cannot be contained. And so I think that was really the sentiment that I was trying to challenge in that book. And yeah, does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. Absolutely. I would love to hear your experience of breaking out of those containers. You already referenced it, needing to be small, you know, needing yeah. to, I don't want to say invisible, but along those lines, what did it actually feel like to, to start to break down those containers? Yeah, I think it's interesting because, again, like my privilege comes into it and the fact that I have a family that supports me also plays a huge part. But I think choosing to do art, for example, that is something that is not lucrative or a viable career path for an Indian person. Um, and so that is one way to like break that barrier. Or even I have short hair now. I think it's as simple as wanting to cut my hair and everyone being like, oh, my God. Um, it was such a re visceral reaction of like, you cut your hair. And so I don't look in the way that you expect me to look. I have tattoos. That's another thing. It's like, there's all of these things. I guess you could say that it, it feels a bit rebellious, but I think it's just me expressing myself and not wanting to be defined in one specific way. I think growing up, there was a lot of like, I, I, I was writing about how the, the work really resonated with me because my lived experience growing up was being in, being perceived as a sexual object when I would walk home from the school bus or like being my body being intruded upon by strangers at concerts or other public spaces or, or things like that where I now I'm like I'm not I feel like in those situations in the past I would be quiet about it and like not want to share because it's shameful and now I'm just like why should I be the one to be ashamed? I'm not the one doing something that is super slimy and, and horrifying. So I, I think that there's like that, that bold piece again, where it's like, I'm not going to sit down quietly and just do what you tell me to do, because that's what I've been taught to do. I'm going to question you and I'm going to fight back and I'm going to share my opinions, even though I have so many, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Oh God, you have too many opinions, which Sorry, I'm a human being. A bit meandering. Does that answer your question? It absolutely does. I Thank you for talking about shame. I would say, I think we use the word easily, but the concept behind it, I feel like as people, we really bury the, the feeling of shame. How mm. did you, um, from feeling that sense of shame, basically you said it caused me shame and then it didn't. What did that path look like? I think it's just feeling a sense of control of my own body and self and like being able to express myself in the way that I want to I think moving to Canada is part of that right like I feel more a sense of acceptance in who I am here <clears throat> sorry pardon me and so I think I'm just not afraid anymore I think it's also growing up and like aging where you're just you're not a little bit more about what's right and wrong in the world and you're not afraid to take a stand as much as when you're younger and just like unsure about whether something is okay for you or not mm. yeah mm -hmm. and then I'm so curious and you've touched on it but growing up in India and your education in both India and Canada how have mm -hmm. those very diverse experiences influenced your 
artistic perspective or your approach to storytelling and community? Mm-hmm. Well, so I think when I was in India, I was making a lot of work about the past and contemplating historic events that had affected me or the people around me. Like a lot of my projects are about uh, understanding a historical political event from the perspective of the people that experienced it. So the 1947 partition of India, the 1984 state massacre, Tibetans living in exile in India, and those kinds of things that were more external, they were outside of me, but that I had a connection to in some way. Whereas when I moved here, it became about understanding my positionality better. So I became an immigrant. I became a person of color where I was just a person before. So a lot of these things shifted for me. And I also became an uninvited visitor on unceded territory. And so it really shifted the perspective to be more about my own my own experience and unpacking that. And so the projects that I have been doing here, Radical Care, uh, Listening Vessels, which is all about uh, amplifying our voice in, in space together. And the show I did at Massey Art Society, which is called Temporary Resident, which is all about these illustrations of these uncomfortable creatures trying to exist in this space. Yeah, so recognizing that this history is not mine, but that I have a place in it now and trying to unpack what that means. So context-wise, that that has been a big shift. But I think when it comes to storytelling, my approach is quite similar. It's always focused on building trust and making sure there's like reciprocity in the process that you're, you're moving at the speed of trust. You're not pushing things or forcing things and that you're really deeply listening and trying to understand rather than make assumptions and, and fill spaces with your own bias, although it's impossible to be unbiased. Anyway, yeah, and I think that the goals of the work are a little bit different, whereas one is amplifying the voice of other people, and now it's like my voice is a little bit more in it, and implicating myself in the work in the context has become a big shift in, mm. in my storytelling practice. Yeah, Very insightful. I'm curious how you reconcile the life of a little bit more privilege and then identifying as an immigrant they're they're dramatic differences and i'm what does it look like to hold those two in tension yeah it's it's a confusing life (laughs) yeah interesting i think it's it's so interesting because i also travel back and forth right like except for covid when i hadn't gone home for three years but it's like there is that navigation of space that becomes a bit more complex maybe it's because i do have a large privilege in India, but I don't necessarily have that privilege here. And, and no, that's, I don't know if that's true. I do have a lot of privilege here as well, right? But different kinds of privilege in both those spaces. And so it just becomes about what I do with my privilege. And for me, that is sharing stories and amplifying voice. And I think here is also the big, the big thing is like trying to understand my position. Like I was saying earlier, that there's There's this project that I'm doing with UBC called Belonging on Unceded Territory, which is all about unpacking what belonging looks like from different positionalities. And so I think that like doing work like that is really rich and helps me understand what it means to be fluid through context. Because say like I will talk to someone 
who was born here, raised here, and understands a lot about the historical context and has had exposure to the fact that a lot of Indigenous histories have been erased and a lot of the, this land is stolen and they know a lot of the context where when I was here, I didn't know anything because mm. it's by design. And I would say it's by design that we are not told or that we don't know where to look. And so like, then I speak to someone who is a refugee here who moved here fleeing war and didn't really have a choice. And then they're being, uh, they're in this dialogue session where they're trying to unpack belonging and they're like, I don't, I don't like, this is not something I chose, but don't I deserve to be in a safe space? And so it, there, there's just so much layer and nuance and complexity in this in this question of privilege and belonging and how we navigate space that I don't know if I have an answer. I feel like it's rare where you get to be in conversation where you're talking about privilege and mm-hmm. and change and immigration and and so it's a it's a beautiful conversation to theorize around and I really appreciate your take. So thank you. Mm-hmm. I would love to talk about your creative practice. I practice discipline, art practice. What I mean, I think it's a practice. Do you think it's a practice? Yeah, it's a practice. <laughs> Yours. Okay, great. Um, when you, you gotta do it, you gotta do it. You got. Also, I think sometimes lots of people are dismissive of art. Not to offend you, but I do think mm-hmm. there's this like dismissiveness toward it as like, oh, I'm not creative or I'm not artistic. Oh yeah. Um yeah. And and so I do like the phrase practice because you are practicing creativity and art in a way that's phenomenal and I would say like challenging a lot of people's understanding about the world around mm-hmm. us. I am curious when you approach your practice though, when you want to critique existing injustices or all of the things you're passionate about, what's your process like from conception to execution? What do you go through? Mm-hmm. I think yeah, that's interesting because it's not standardized, right? There's not like one linear process that I get to follow and check mark the boxes because it really depends on the project and the context and all of these, what what it is that I'm trying to say. And sometimes I don't know what it is that I'm trying to say, right? That is emergent as well because you, I think maybe the, the things that are consistent is one, Uh, reckoning with my positionality like making sure that I am not removing myself from the equation like I used to like used to think was the way to do but really implicating myself in the work understanding what my position is what I'm bringing to the to this conversation as well and then really grounding the work and not knowing like I don't know what's going to come out of this it is emergent because you're working with people and not like just materials I think it's it's important to be uh, open and receptive and adaptive to changing situations circumstances and like what will emerge from from a conversation so making sure that I'm not making any assumptions and like I said earlier it's a lot about building the relationship and building trust and moving at that speed so you're not uh, pushing an agenda but rather like co-creating and that's another big big part of my practice which is I want to collaborate I want it to feel like a sense of co-ownership where we are creating something together as opposed to me making something for you and about you and I mean that's something where I've tried to do a lot in my projects like I just I just did a project with Collingwood Neighborhood House where we put up these banners on 
that lined George Street. Um, and they were all based in cyanotype that was made with the community that lives there. So we collaborated with the sun. We like gathered materials outside. And my, I should also say my friend Annie Canto helped with that as well um, with the workshops. And we like pressed all these leaves and, and not pressed. That's the wrong word. But we, we took impressions of the leaves. And the sun helped us solidify those impressions. And then you know, I documented and scanned those works and, and then went back and did some more research about the history of the space and tried to create artwork that represented the history. So the past and included the present, which is the community members. And so, yeah, anyway, so that was like a little bit of a... I love it. ...aside. But so that's, for example, that's one one process, right? I think your question is around what what are your steps or what, do, what are the things that you mm-hmm. put in place or like concept to execution. And so another project that I might take an ex- as an example is Portraits of Exile, which was about Tibetan refugees living in exile in India. And so that project it started with a question. It started with a brief. It started when we have this nonprofit organization that wants to make a storybook about uh, an Indian perspective because a lot of the stories that existed in, in our life growing up was Western perspectives. As like, we had Dr. Seuss and we had like all of these books that like didn't relate to the context we were in. So it was an effort to make more children's books that related to that context. Anyway, so for that, we had a brief. We had uh, to come up with research questions. I love mind mapping. It's my, my favorite thing. It's <laughs> just like going off on a tangent, like putting them all down somewhere. And then you follow a thread. You go into space. You spend time with people. You eat their food. You are invited into their homes. You You ease into it. And then the story finds you, I, I want to say. Like, I think I spoke to like 25 people and I fell in love with all of them and I wanted to share all of their stories. But big for the interest of time, I could only do three. So I ended up with three nonfiction graphic novels. And I think that another really important part of my process is the share back or the feedback loop, which is you have to take your work back to the people, especially when it's about somebody other than yourself. and make sure you represented them in a way that they agree with and that if they have any changes or feedback that you make every effort to, to make those changes. And then it's also around seeking permission, making sure that you're, uh, they know what this work is going to be and where it's going to be. And like, yeah, there's a lot of ethics, um, ethical dilemmas around working like this, working collaboratively with others or telling other people's stories and then what happens with that uh who profits from that so for the ngo like i didn't make any money but i did gain a lot of social capital right because i get to talk about this project and it's like one of the my my most favorite projects like it's very dear to my heart um but yeah, so how do you reconcile that? Like I gain social capital and the folks that the stories are about don't necessarily gain in the same way. But they, but like when I do return the books to them, they're so excited that just anyone is talking about their experience. Um, I remember like someone from the Tibetan government 
contacted me and or talked about how they were grateful that I was doing this book. And so, wow, I can't remember who it was. And I just remember being like really overwhelmed. And then I think I just like filed it somewhere in the back of my head. Like that's kind of <laughs> impossible. Uh, and someone wrote a research paper about me recently where they talked about how this was the first graphic novel from an Indian perspective written about Tibetans living in India, which I'm like, that can't be true. But apparently it is. That's incredible. Congratulations. Yeah. Wild. It's great work. I'm curious what you do when you face seasons where you lack that maybe creativity or inspiration. Cry? <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> well, I think... I think it's like not to put so much pressure on myself. Like if I'm not feeling it, that's fine. Like I can just do something small. I can make a little doodle or I can have a little dance, like cook something. That's creative too, right? But I, I also think like having a group of people that are creatives. I was very lucky because Emily Carr gave me a lot of my friends who are all amazing, talented humans. And so we can we can like have art parties where we make art together or we go to shows and that's also seeking inspiration right yeah absolutely love the cooking send some recipes my way always looking for new recipes <laughs> okay good to know with your art practice you also talk about your goal of facilitating empathy across mm. diverse communities how do you include mm. empathy into your practice and what does empathy mean to you yeah, that's a really meaty question because I think a lot about that has shifted for me recently. I think when I use the word empathy, I was talking about hoping to create space for understanding different perspectives. And I actually read an article recently by, well, so the article, I don't know who the article was by, but it was talking about this book by um a professor of psychology at Yale, whose name is Paul Bloom. And the book is called Against Empathy. And it really just makes this case that empathy is feeling the feeling of others. And so when you are feeling the feeling of others, you are in that same state as them. So it's hard for you to help them in the same way. Whereas I think that his argument was to reframe it to compassion where it's like you acknowledge the pain of others but you don't take it on and so you are able to offer support still and then I mean lots of interesting things around what is your capacity to empathize with people you might empathize with one person and put yourself in their shoes but that that's the extent of our capacity how many people could you do that with and and so that makes it very impossible that's like impossible task and so that I think is really interesting. And it also removes that person from the equation, right? You're like trying to step into their shoes, but you could never, right? No matter how much we try, understand fully what it means to be somebody else. And so you're, it's also doing them a dis disservice. And so, yeah, now right thinking about the word empathy a lot more critically and maybe trying to replace it with empathy. I'm sorry, what am I saying? Mm -hmm. <laughs> replace it with understanding. So there's like a difference between feeling and understanding. And I think that my goal is for people to take perspective or like 
seek different ways of being and knowing in the world and know that there's not one dominant way to exist. Uh, I think empathy and compassion create a really beautiful Venn diagram. And in the middle mm. is where you feel a sense of belonging. Mm. So belonging is such an interesting reality that we're all looking for. But in order to belong, you have to really be like seen and understood, which I think takes yeah. empathy and compassion. So yeah. it's a phenomenal topic. And I think one that we need to think critically about and also really insert into our daily lives, especially these days where I feel like there's not a lot of empathy or compassion mm. or like kindness mm -hmm. in just your day to day. I don't know if you experienced mm -hmm. that, but yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, where, where do you live? And I'm going to come move into your neighborhood. <laughs> no, I was like thinking about the bus a lot as a site for that testing those waters and just seeing how people respond to each other, like who gives up their seat or if there's someone that has a disability, maybe they have a tick or maybe they're verbalizing at nobody in particular and like how people respond. And I, I've definitely um, witnessed moments of that, like empathy, compassion, understanding, but also the lack thereof. But yeah, sorry, that just popped in my head. The bus. The bus is a great place for <laughs> observing human interaction and it is definitely not getting brighter, in my opinion. So this is where you come come along and we need your work. <laughs> no pressure. Oh, yeah. I'm here to solve the world's problems. Can't wait. One, <laughs> one art project at a time. I believe it's possible. Let's do this. Well, uh, yeah. I have two more questions along the lines of boldness. We got to go there. Mm -hmm. Are you ready? Mm -hmm. What, I am ready. Oh, phew. <laughs> <laughs> what does bold mean to you? Yeah, great question. I think I think I I relate boldness to a sense of fearlessness. So it's not the absence of fear, but rather the the courage to do it anyway. Like, isn't that a quote from somebody? I don't um, know, but if it isn't, like, claim like it. A, <laughs> like a baseball person <laughs> anyway I don't watch sports but yeah like it's it's just like it's just the ability to go go there and do that and not worry about the consequences so much anymore if that makes sense certainly and then with that with that definition what would you say is your most bold or one could say boldest art project to date? Oh, my boldest art project? Hmm. I gotta think about this. I think Listening Vessels is pretty bold because I didn't know what I was doing. I was just making these 32 really imperfect vessels that I, I didn't know how to do ceramics. Like I had to lean on a lot of people to help me. And I remember just like people asking me why I was making these vessels. And I didn't know. I was saying things like, I don't know. I just, I feel like I should be making them. And really that project was about like creating a space for people to come together and listen. Like it was the best they mimic like a year maybe and they you can hold them up to your ear and they amplify the sound of voice you can hold them up to your mouth and they amplify your own mm. voice and so it was very experimental and I didn't really know what to expect but that like when I did create that space there were people 
lots of people came and they were all playing with it. And there was one moment that really stood out where my friend Rayhan was singing into one of the vessels, like a Farsi lullaby. And everybody in that space turned their vessels into a earpiece and like amplified the sound of her voice in their ears. Wow. And it was just this beautiful moment that you can't really plan or I, there's no way I could have thought about it. And then after she said that she'd never heard her voice in public before because in Iran, women are not allowed to sing in public. And so those are the moments that I think I'm, I'm chasing and hope to create more space for. And yeah, that was, it was bold of me to, to be so unbothered by not knowing what that space was going to be about. And then like, just creating the conditions. What a anyway, story. That, yeah. Phenomenal. Well, if people want to follow along, where can they find you? Well, I'm probably walking down the street somewhere. (laughs) Being bold. (laughs) Being bold. Wearing some clunky earrings. But um, yeah, I have a website. It's anyastrani.com. If you can spell that. We'll put it in the show notes. (laughs) (laughs) I also have an Instagram. Um, It's also my name. Again, good luck. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, essentially just social media. Fantastic. The internet. Amazing. Well, Anya, I've so appreciated talking to you. It's incredible to hear about your practice and your passion for creating all of the spaces you do. So thank you so much for your work and thank you for being here today. Thank you, Kelly. Also, thank you for having me and also doing the work as well. Like I'm so inspired by your practice and you know, Hello Yellow and everything that you've done and stand for. So I feel oh. very lucky that our paths have crossed. Me too. That means a lot. Thank you for saying that. This podcast is produced in part by Pam Cameron. Many thanks to all of those who have helped me along the way. 